We'll hear argument now, number 105, original, the State of Kansas versus the State of Colorado. Mr. Draper. Mr. Chief Justice, thank you, and may it please the Court. The parties are here on exceptions to the third report in this case. After the Court determined that the State of Colorado had violated the Arkansas River Compact in 1995, the case was returned to the Special Master for further proceedings. Subsequently, the Special Master determined that Colorado had violated the Arkansas River Compact in every year from the inception of the compact to the date of filing of this case in 1985. He further determined that since the filing of the lawsuit, that Colorado has continued to violate the compact in every year through 1996, except for 1987. Colorado does not challenge those determinations. Each of those determinations is in the uh, unit of uh, acre-feet altogether. For the period 1950 through 1994, which is the period at issue here for the remedy, he determined that approximately 420,000 acre-feet of water had been depleted from the Arkansas River by Colorado and its water users in violation of the compact. That amount of water is about 125,000 times the size of this courtroom, or a column the size of this courtroom extending upward about 1,000 miles. He has determined that the proper remedy for these losses, which are both past and future because of the lingering effects of the violations by Colorado, should be compensated in money rather than in water. At the end of trial, Kansas had determined that its losses were $62 million. Colorado's corresponding number was $9 million. The special master recognized losses that we calculate to be approximately $57 million. However, the special master was persuaded by Colorado not to accord Kansas full compensation for its losses. He reduced it further by denying part of the prejudgment interest that had been quantified by Kansas at trial. Why should any prejudgment interest be awarded as between states? I mean, this is based on the compact, isn't it, this lawsuit? This is based on the uh, compact, yes, Your Honor. And is there any provision in the compact for the provision of prejudgment interest? No, there is no specific provision on prejudgment interest, nor is there any provision uh, specifically addressing the remedy, just as there was no provision in the Pecos River Compact, which this case, uh, this well, court the common law rule, I assume, is uh, that you don't award prejudgment interest for unliquidated damages. That is the traditional rule, Your Honor, but it is uh, a largely discredited rule at this, at this point in, in history, and the Court has recognized that most well, recently. But as between state sovereigns, I mean, who's going to pay the bill in Colorado? It's the taxpayers, isn't it? It's the state of Colorado. They are the, the signatory. The of the state of Colorado will end up footing the bill, and it just seems odd to me that we would all of a sudden craft some rule allowing prejudgment interest against a sovereign state. I mean, the states presumably had ample opportunity to negotiate at the time of the compact for the kinds of things that should go into a damages award in the event of a breach. In almost every case, the compacts that are in place now do not specify the precise remedy or, in most cases, any remedy that might be afforded by this Court. Did they just assume that, what, normal contractual remedies will be applied? 
I think that is the correct analysis, Your, uh, Your Honor. The Court has said in, in 1987 in the Texas versus New Mexico litigation that the contract remedies should be looked to to determine the proper remedy for breach of a compact. Was that the very first case in which damages, money damages, were even awarded in one of these original jurisdiction cases? That is the first case, Your Honor, in which the prospect of uh, money damages for violation of an interstate water compact uh, were allowed. There was not a specific amount at that time. Uh, the Court returned the case to the Special Master, and it was settled before a further determination was necessary. The point wasn't even contested here, was it? Both, both sides wanted to uh, uh, resolve the case with, uh, with monetary payment instead of with water. So that, that's hardly, you know, solid, solid precedent for the, uh, for the proposition that uh, money damages are awardable. In, in this case, Your Honor, if I understood your, your point, Colorado took the position initially that compensation should be in water without interest. Uh, the state of Kansas took the position that it should right. be in money with it. And this is the first case we've had where, where that, uh, uh, that conflict has been presented to us. One of the parties doesn't want to pay money damages. That is correct. And if we didn't allow money damages, I, I presume it would, and if, uh, um, and if uh, one of the parties would prefer monetary damages, I presume they could negotiate it out and pay, I mean, Colorado could negotiate it out and pay money instead of water. That's correct. And, and Colorado is not challenging the determination by the special master here that the uh, remedy should be in money. I know they're not, but it money damages... Uh, uh, were not awarded, and some form of water relief. Then you have a master who's there forever and uh, ad administering the thing at, at great cost often to the parties. So money damages have that to recommend them. Money damages certainly has that to recommend them, Your Honor. It's hard to tell whether we're uh, receiving the water. You look at the river and Colorado says, that's your water coming down in payment for our past violations. I can tell when we get a check. I'm not so sure when we are looking at water in the river. It's, it, the interest question was never uh, adjudicated before. But you're saying, as well, the damages question was never adjudicated because last time around both parties said that's what they wanted. Last time around it was not clear that the parties were in agreement on uh, the possibility of money damages, but this Court ruled that that was an option that should be considered by the special master. If you want to get a check instead of water, you can, you can always uh, negotiate that out. I mean, uh, That's true, and we're asking for so, and, and, and that wouldn't put the burden on us to try to figure out how you compute money damages for failure to deliver water. I mean, that's, what, that's one of the big issues in this case, I, I, I suppose, isn't it? You're, you're going to get to that, whether we we, we compute the losses to the, to, to the farmers of Kansas uh, from the failure to uh, have more water delivered. Yes. There is no dispute at this point in the case, Your Honor, that the compensation should be paid in money. That, as, as Your Honor alludes to, was quantified by Kansas in large part by assessing the injury suffered by the water users in Kansas, mostly irrigating farmers. The uh, approach was taken uh, to assess the losses in value suffered by the water users in Kansas because we had no ready market for water 
to which we could turn for the value of an acre foot of water in 1950, 1951, and so on, if we had that, that would have been the uh, most direct way to do it. I, I, I take it your argument for, for, the, for, for interest here uh, is that there were, that, that the money, uh, I'm sorry, that the water you didn't get in the 45 years in which the violations went on uh, is, is translatable uh, into crop loss. Crop loss is translatable into money. Uh, and in order to be made whole on the money, you should be made whole on the loss of, of use of the money. I mean, that's, that's your interest argument, isn't it? That's exactly right, Your Okay. Yes. Did, did you uh, – was there an inflationary factor added so that the damages, uh, say, for the early 60s were computed in uh, 1995 or year $2,000? For the years that were denied uh, prejudgment interest treatment, 1950 through 1968, the special master did adjust those at the suggestion of Colorado, uh, not on the basis of principle, but simply because Colorado was not objecting to that. Those are uh, adjusted, uh, which is uh, only a fraction of the, of the time value of money that occurred from that period to the present. The people who are paying are really the present taxpayers, and they're paying for something that older generations of taxpayers maybe didn't do. And it could be a horrendous amount if you have a violation that's 200 years old, as you could, in a different case. Rather than getting into all that, why wouldn't we assume that the states didn't want to unless they said it specifically in the compact? Your Honor, there are limits to keep such amounts from becoming too large. The principle that was largely addressed in the last time that the case was before the Court, that is latches. The question was, was there unreasonable delay in prosecuting Kansas' claim by Kansas? That was contested. You know, I suppose it's nobody's fault. You you know, it just, what I vision, and I want the answer to this, and I'll exaggerate it, but hordes of lawyers in state attorneys general's office combing through the files of ancient documents looking for violations primarily to receive for the state treasury vast amounts of money coming out of compound interest i mean you see that's the horror now what what prevents that from happening once we get into the habit of awarding uh, uh, prejudgment interest the court has stated that the determination of uh, prejudgment interest is subject to the court's discretion. It is also subject to consideration, again, of the time uh, that has passed. And we are looking here at not simply any claim that could be uh, found in the uh, cellar of a courthouse. This is the this is the claim of the state of Colorado against the state of Kansas, or I'm sorry, the state of, state of Kansas against the state of Colorado. And it is Colorado, along with Kansas, who are the signatory parties to this compact. And the compact itself, in Article 7A, equates the state with its water users. If I could turn your attention to that particular provision, it's in the, in the uh, topside brief, the blue brief, in the appendix at page A-11. Beginning at the bottom of A-10, Article 7A of the Arkansas River Compact says, each state shall be subject to the terms of this compact. 
where the name of the state or the term state is used in this compact, these shall be construed to include any person or entity of any nature whatsoever using, claiming, or in any manner asserting any right to the use of the waters of the Arkansas River under the, under the authority of that state. We believe that this equates the water users in both states with the state themselves, both in terms of the actions in Colorado by Colorado water users constituting the actual violation by the state of Colorado, and on the other side of the state line, the losses suffered by the individual farmers in Kansas being the losses that the state of Kansas as state is entitled to claim for breach of the obligation that Colorado had to the state of Kansas. And in, in further uh, support of that point, I would point to a, a uh, second provision of the compact. It's in the same appendix at page A-5, and this is in the famous provision, at least famous to those of us who have been working on this case, uh, 4, uh, 4D. This is, the, this is the provision that makes explicit the obligation of Colorado. And it's the proviso in the last five lines of Article 4D that is important. It reads, provided that the waters of the Arkansas River, as defined in Article 3, shall not be materially depleted in usable quantity or availability for use to the water users in Colorado and Kansas under this compact by future development or construction. We, we believe that it is not the proper uh, characterization of this case that it is going to be, uh, that is a, a problem for the individuals, either as taxpayers in Colorado or the water users in Kansas, but that these are state obligations and they need to be settled between states on fair compensatory rules that are normally applied in contract situations because, as we know, co compacts are contracts between the compact Is it states. the case that there is no market for an acre foot of water in Kansas? Is there such a price today? that could be paid if a farmer were to go out and buy water from another farmer who had some? Would there be a price paid per acre foot? Your Honor, there, there is it's no specific evidence in the record on that. But the, uh, from my knowledge, the uh, water tends to be transferred with the land, and it is used primarily for irrigation well, in today's purposes. world, I think uh, we all are aware that water can be severed from the land and sold so much an acre foot for application on a different piece of land. That's correct, Your Honor. However, that information was not available to a sufficient extent for the years 1950 and later. Well, presumably you'd take the current value and then adjust for values in earlier times. Our experts sought to determine the speci from specific data applicable to each year what the losses were, what the crop prices were, what the appropriate interest rates were for uh, that year and each following year. We just it seems like such a complicated, um, not obvious measure of damages. I was just struck by, by how strange it was, really, to try to measure damages here in dollars based on some estimated crop loss to individual farmers. It is, it is a uh, daunting task at times, Your Honor, but we wanted to present to the Special Master the most specific data 
that we could possibly find. Does, does Kansas have the uh, riparian system of water rights or the appropriated system? Appropriated system, Your Honor. There's, there's one thing on the question of, of uh, how far the compound interest could compound uh, that I, I don't understand, and I, was, I want to ask the other side the same question, but maybe you can explain it. Uh, as I understand, the, the master decided that the interest ought to run from uh, 1969, which was the date upon which each side either knew or should have known uh, that a violation of the compact was taking place. Yes. The master also decided that there had been no undue delay on the part of Kansas uh, in not instituting suit for another, what was it, 17 years, something like that. That's correct. The suit was filed at the end of 1985. The two two dates, um, or the findings with respect to the two dates, struck me as being at least possibly in tension. I'm not suggesting uh, that that that, uh, Kansas would have been obligated to file suit, of course, in 1969, the year that it first knew or should have known. But it also seems the case uh, that there was rather a long gap between that time and the time that Kansas actually did institute suit, and yet the master found no undue delay. Uh, all of this may be relevant uh, if we determine that interest should run uh, and try to come up with some determination about how to peg the point at which it begins to run. Is there some tension between the new or should have known in 69 and the no undue delay uh, for a lawsuit that wasn't filed for 17 years? I believe there is some tension, Your Honor. Uh, We believe that the way that the special master has applied the lack of knowledge in the two areas, one area being whether there was unreasonable delay and the other area area being whether prejudgment interest should be awarded, is inconsistent. We suggest that it is impossible to find unreasonable delay if the plaintiff was unaware of the claim. That was essentially... You mean unaware, in fact, even if the plaintiff should have been aware? That would go into the reasonableness of the delay. The should, uh, knew or should have known would be, would be the complete statement okay. of that test. Okay. We were in response and, to my question my concern that they would dig up old claims and then have horrendous interest, you said, well, there's a lot of discretion in the master to prevent that from happening. Well, that's what he did here. He said, uh, we're not going to give you the money between 1950 and 1968. Now you're complaining about that. So, so if he doesn't have discretion, then why isn't my horrendous imaginary hypothetical a real problem? Well, the cardinal, cardinal rule, Your Honor, is... Complete compensation question. Well, fine. If it's complete compensation, then we're back to my problem, which is digging up very old claims from 1780 or something, and we discover that all of the taxpayers of Massachusetts are uh, going to pay uh, $5 billion to New Hampshire because they found a claim from 1782, and uh, there's a compound interest. I would suggest only, Your Honor, that there are – methods by which the court has dealt with uh, significant or unreasonable delay in its interstate cases. No, that's what I'm interested in. The cases where you can't say lashes, they dig up some good claim. And now you previously said they have a lot of discretion on the prejudgment interest part. 
Now you're saying they don't have discretion on the prejudgment interest. Well, I should clarify my position. I would, I would say that there, while there is discretion, it is a very limited scope given the authorities of this Court and that it is to be exercised according to a system of principles that have been set out by this Court. Certainly certainly somebody bringing a 200-year-old claim would find a formidable barrier in the doctrine of latches, would they not? Yes, Your Honor. This Court in 1995 uh, did not go so far as to decide that latches is applicable, but found that in this case there was unreasonable delay and that either through the doctrine of, la- of latches or acquiescence there was the ability of the court to deal with stale claims. Mr. One, Draper, could I, could I come back to uh, 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 Justice Souter's question? I don't understand how it is that Kansas should not have known enough to bring the suit until 1987 but Colorado should have known that it was wrongfully taking uh, too much water 17 years before that. Uh, it seems to me that the, the, the two should go hand in hand. We, we believe that, that the existence or non-existence of knowledge on the part of uh, Colorado is uh, absolutely irrelevant as a matter of law, and we have taken no position on what the right date might be if you were to well, go how could no, but that, that be? The whole purpose of the common law rule against uh, prejudgment interest for unliquidated claims was because of lack of knowledge to the def- by the defendant. That was the whole reason for the common law rule. And if that's the reason, then uh, you're asking us to adopt a new rule here. How could Colorado have known about prejudgment interest in an interstate compact dispute? Your Honor, that whole line of reasoning, we assert, has been discredited. It is not logical. It has faced trenchant criticism, to use the words of this Court, in uh, the 1995 case of City of Milwaukee. And we believe that this is as the Court has pointed out, essentially a contract dispute. One must keep in mind that it is sovereign states who are the contracting parties, but so the guiding principles... So shouldn't that, Mr. Draper, mean that there should be some modification? I, you, you say the common law rule has been abandoned in many states because it's illogical, the distinction between liquid, liquidated and unliquidated damages. On the other hand, as Justice O'Connor's starting questions indicated, we are dealing here with a peculiar animal, a suit between two states. So why do you insist that, either, that you take the, what would be the rule for an ordinary contract in a state that's abandoned the liquidated, non-liquidated, and take that over, uh, jot and tittle, to the interstate uh, suit? Because, Your Honor, it would violate the principle that this Court set out in 1987 that a remedy would be provided by this Court for violation of an interstate compact. If you do that, the Court is not providing a complete remedy. Well, but that doesn't, doesn't that sort of beg, beg the question. If we, if we start with the assumption that there is some discretion over the matter of interest, why couldn't we resolve the tension between the findings with respect to, the two, to those two dates with a rule like this, that interest will be awardable from the time at which the violation either was or should have been known and from the time after that 
at which suit was instituted. To avoid the problem of allowing a state, as apparently Kansas did here, to sit on its rights from 1969 uh, to, to whatever it was, 1977. Uh, there are two answers to your question, 87. Your Honor. 87. Yeah. There, there are uh, Two, two, two answers. One is that this Court has already determined that there was not unreasonable delay in bringing this suit, and the Special Master did not base in any way his decision to limit prejudgment interest on uh, any delay other than that considered in the latches analysis. Well, I, I know that, but why shouldn't he have? I mean, it, it just seems odd whether the delay, call the delay undue or not. The fact is there was a, a 17 or 18 year delay uh, from the time at which Kansas could have brought this lawsuit. Why should Kansas be rewarded with interest for that delay, even if it was not undue? It's not a reward. It's simply compensation. There is no windfall. Thank you, Mr. Draper. Uh, Mr. Manier, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The United States would like to address two issues with respect to the Master's proposed remedy. First, the Master's calculation of damages here does not violate the Eleventh Amendment. And second, this Court should allow prejudgment interest on a discretionary basis in interstate compact suits. When, when you get to your second point, and I don't mean to spoil your order, but will, will you sort of take up where, where we left off on, on the problem that we, some of us seem to be having in finding that uh, there, there was knowledge uh, uh, or should have been knowledge at 69. Uh, we don't have a suit uh, for a couple of decades, and interest is piling up. That's our problem. And I, so will you address that when you get to point two? I'd be happy to address that now, in fact, to do preserve the continuity of the argument. Uh, Your Honor, first of all, the Master's finding with respect to knowledge here related to Colorado's knowledge and not Kansas's knowledge. And Colorado had knowledge that there was the prospect of some violation because it had complaints within its own state borders with respect to groundwater pumping depleting, depleting stream flow. And as you may recall, that is the basis for liability here, that Colorado yeah. had in, allowed its citizens to pump groundwater, which reduced the no, state I, line flow. I realize that. Did, he, did the master specifically find uh, that uh, Kansas was, was not under an obligation to have known in 69? He found that Kansas did not know at that did time. Did not know in fact. Did not know in fact. And I suppose Colorado did not know in fact. But he, he found that Colorado should have known in 69. Did he make a finding that, that it was not the case that Kansas should have known in 69? I do not believe that he did. I don't believe that he specifically addressed that it issue. It would seem the same would apply. I mean, people from Kansas never go to Colorado? And what, what's the <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's hard to say what the state of knowledge was in 1968. And to the extent that there was some lack of proof here, I think the burden would fall on, on, on Kansas to have uh, I mean, why can't we make the assumption that if uh, one side knew or should have known, the other side knew or should have known? I, I, I do think that we, we simply can't assume that everyone Farmers know who's drilling wells and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, though, that Colorado, for instance, 
uh, had commissioned a study. It had done its own internal studies. I believe in 1965 it had begun to license groundwater pumping. So it's not clear that everything that was known to one sovereign would necessarily be known to another sovereign. Let's, let's assume, just for, and I, I, I think we've got your point, but assume for the sake of argument that Kansas would have been under the same duty to know that Colorado was and that 69 is the date. The case as it comes to us, I take it, is a case in which uh, there is no question about Kansas uh, being thrown out of court for suing too late. But it may well be uh, that by waiting so long to sue, Kansas should not be entitled to the same running and compounding of interest that it would have been entitled to if it had sued more promptly after the 1969 date. Why shouldn't we take that possibility into consideration in fashioning a rule uh, as to when the interest starts to run? I think it's entirely fair to take that consideration into account. The United States' view with regard to prejudgment interest is that it should be allowed in interstate compact suits, but on a discretionary basis based on the facts of the individual case. Mr. Mitt, one thing seems to have gotten lost in this discussion. I thought that it was when Colorado and perhaps Kansas knew that Kansas uh, water was being depleted, and when you were able to prove in court how much, wasn't there something in the record that until there was computer modeling, you couldn't estimate with any degree of accuracy that's, how much was involved. And that wasn't until the 80s. That's correct, Your Honor, that also there was difficulty in determining exactly how much water had been depleted. It wasn't clear when that knowledge was available, but certainly was after, we believe, Yeah, but couldn't they have brought a suit in equity to, to, to stop the depletion? And if they'd done that, the damages wouldn't be running, we wouldn't have the interest question. Well, I agree with that as well. And again, I think so they still, the, the fact that they may not have been able to prove the, the precise predicate uh, which is uh, the, the, the modeling predicate for the com- computation of money damages now doesn't prove that they shouldn't have sued earlier. Yeah, Your Honor, I agree with all of the points that are being made here, and the United States wishes to emphasize the principle that a rigid w- rule one way or another with regard to prejudgment interest is what ought to be avoided here. We do think that these factors are relevant in considering what is the appropriate well, level of prejudgment interest. why not the simplest interest. thing? There's states. They can say what they want in the compact. Just say the traditional common law, no interest on, no prejudgment interest on unliquidated damages, whatever, applies. We assume it in the contract, compact, unless they work it out, say, to the contrary. Your Honor, because I think that doesn't adequately address the common law rule, which I think we should look to the restatement of contracts as stating the, the, the rule in a compact case. That's the closest analogy, the, con- the contract uh, situation. And in the con- the, under the restatement of contracts, since 1932, the rule has been that where damages are a fixed sum of money or performance that has a fixed value, prejudgment interest does apply. But in those cases, in all other cases, uh, prejudgment interest is applied under a rule of reasonableness uh, based on the aspects, the, the circumstances of the particular case. So our position really simply suggests that the restatement rule is what ought to be applied here. Both states would have been on knowledge of that, that principle as a background principle in this case. Uh, I would like to address the 11th Amendment issue uh, because I think that also uh, merits this Court's concern. Uh, 
the master properly determined in accordance with this Court's decision in Texas v. New Mexico that Kansas is entitled to money damages as a basis for Colorado's compact violations, as a remedy for the compact violations. And he calculated those damages by determining the value of the water that Kansas was entitled to but did not receive. And in making that determination, he evaluated the the costs to Kansas farmers uh, which was reflected in two matters, increased groundwater pumping costs and also lost crop production. Uh, Colorado has challenged uh, that aspect of the award on the basis that it violates the 11th Amendment. And we disagree. Uh, our view is the master's determination of damages here was simply by reference to what the water was worth to the Kansas users, not to provide any sort of compensation for the Kansas users themselves. You mean Colorado can't turn around and give it to the Kansas users who had been deprived of it, if Uh, they're still around? You mean, could Kansas turn around and give them money? Right. Yes. Yes, I believe that Kansas could do that if they wished. So what's the difference between that and these users just just suing uh, Colorado themselves? Well, it's not clear that the users individually have a claim against Colorado. Kansas does have its own claim predicated on the Uh, compact. Let's assume they don't. Let's assume they don't. Let's assume it would violate the 11th Amendment for these farmers who who are deprived of the water to sue sue Colorado. Why does it make any sense to allow Kansas to sue — on their behalf, and then turn around and give them the money. Because Kansas is not suing on their behalf. Kansas is suing for the performance that was due to it under the compact. Kansas is asserting, in essence, its own claim, which was for delivery of a usable qu- uh, quantity of water, usable water at the state line. And Why shouldn't the measure of damages then relate to what Kansas as a state lost? It did, in part, lost income taxes and that kind of thing. I mean, why would the measure be specifically what each farmer would have lost in terms of dollars? The master did include state income taxes and secondary aspects. I can understand that, but it's hard to know why the measure of money damages should be based strictly on or, or in part on what the individual farmer would have lost if, if the — State doesn't plan to turn around and give it to the farmer. Well, Your Honor, the reason why is we have to determine what was the value of the water at the state line. And as you pointed out before, there's no market uh, for the water uh, like there would be market for so many bushels of wheat. Why does the United States have any position or interest as to what kind of damages uh, Colorado pays Kansas, or the 11th Amendment, for that matter? Well, Your Honor, we have a general interest in these original actions to make sure that there's a fair allocation of damages and rights and responsibilities well, as why, between why, why the — Where does that interest stem from? We are parties to these suits frequently, most likely in issues revolving, involving liability. We are a party to this suit because of our operation of the upstream reservoirs. But does, does, the, does the award of damages from Colorado — to Kansas in any way affect the government's operations of those upstream reservoirs? It would affect them if it were repayment in water. Uh, here, money is being used as a substitute for water, and we felt it appropriate to weigh in on that question uh, with respect to the position that the master has taken. And our position is very simply, simply that we have to look to what the value of the water was at the state line. Well, my problem is if, if, if you do it in this kind of suit, which is under a compact, I presume you'd have to do the same thing in a parents patriae suit by a state against, against another state, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you apply uh, the same rule? Not necessarily, Your Honor, because uh, the 
compact situation involves a situation where there is a clear claim by the state under the uh, an agreement that is entered into by the states. Thank you, Mr. Manier. Mr. Robbins, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I would like to turn initially to the prejudgment interest issue since that seemed to have uh, drawn the Court's attention early on. Uh, I, I would ask you to look at Article 4D that Mr. Draper uh, drew your attention to, because he only asked you to read the second half of Article 4D. That's on page A5 of the Kansas opening brief. Art, Article 4D describes for the parties and for the court what the parties actually intended, and that was not to impede or limit development of water within the Arkansas Basin, subject only to the proviso. Both states understood that there would be additional development within the basin, and both states understood that there would be a risk that that development might cause material depletion to usable flow. Are you now summarizing uh, Article yes, D? Yes, sir. I did not take the time to read the entire article, Your Honor. Uh, the, 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 later in the compact, in the enforcement provision, the two states address the manner in which they are going to determine when usable flows might be depleted by setting up a, an interstate agency called the Comp- Arkansas River Compact Administration. And the Arkansas River Compact Administration is charged with investigating concerns about material depletions to usable flow. There was no contemplation in this compact that Colorado — I want to draw — I want to draw a distinction between other compacts that states have entered into. The Colorado River Compact, where the obligation to deliver water is set out at 75 million acre-feet over 10 years by the upper basin. Uh, the Rio Grande Compact, where there is a table of relationship located right in the compact where each signatory understands what it must do each year to comply with the compact. In the case of the Arkansas River Compact, there was no obligation on the part of Colorado to deliver a particular quantum of water in any year. Rather, both states sought to have the opportunity to continue to develop unused waters, and both states agreed that they would be vigilant working through the interstate agency to investigate when and if a violation or an under-delivery was occurring. Now, no investigation was requested under the compact, under Article 7H, uh, 8H, I'm sorry, until 1985. Prior to that time, both states cooperated together and worked together on the operation of the river. Neither state expressed an understanding that there was any way in which the river was being depleted by activities in Colorado or in Kansas. Remember, if you look again at Article 4D, it applies to both states, not just Colorado. So what we need to do here is understand what the deal was. And the deal wasn't that Colorado was automatically guaranteeing that it was going to deliver a certain amount of water every year, which would be what would be assumed by the argument which Kansas has made. And therefore, failing to deliver some amount over a 40-year period, we automatically should owe them significant damages. When, in fact, the concept here 
was that both states would work to allow full development of the system, and both states would be responsible to ensure that if overdevelopment occurred in one or the other state that affected usable flows, an investigation would be undertaken and appropriate enforcement undertaken. So in our view, at a minimum on prejudgment interest, until 1985, Colorado knew no more than Kansas. There's nothing in the record to suggest that Colorado did. The master they had a report done, which Kansas didn't. Didn't they have a report done? Absolutely. We, Justice Scalia, we certainly did. That report did not deal with the issue of usable, material depletion to usable flow. It was looking rather at the general hydrology in the basin. It did not look at other impacts that were affecting the flows of well, the river. Well, I mean, it, it was clear from that study that flow would be affected, wasn't it? I mean, you, the, you didn't have to be a, 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 a water expert to understand that the, the, the inevitable consequence of that study was that you were taking water from the river. That, there is no question about that. Your, your point is exactly well taken. But remember, we were entitled to take additional water from the river under Article 4D, subject only to the constraint that we not deplete usable flows materially. Okay, so but you've also got a finding which, which you seem to, I think you want to ignore here, that you should have known in 69. What Just, do we do with that? Justice Souter, the finding that the master made, in our opinion, is contrary to this Court's 1995 ruling. We argued in 1995, the two states, about the very Wheeler report upon which the master relied. We argued that that report should have given the states notice of the existence of a potential problem under the compact. And this court found, different than the master's first report to you, that the evidence was vague and conflicting. It is our view that in fairness, if it was too vague and conflicting to find that Kansas should have known in 1969 and brought suit at that time if it was concerned, or better, referred it to the compact administration, that in, in, in fairness, Colorado should be held to no higher standard of knowing that it was, in fact, depleting usable flows. You're asking us to, to, to actually know there were depletions occurring when you did not find that Kansas was even charged. Okay, but is, is that properly before us here? I, I believe it is, yes. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't realized your, your claim went that far, but I will assume it does. So it, it is our view that prejudgment interest ought not be, if, if you are to consider it as, as a remedy in this case, it ought not be held against Colorado at a minimum until 1985, the time at which there was official notice that, in fact, Kansas was asserting that there were depletions, material and depletions. And what's your position after 1985? Well, I — Suppose our, the shoe were on the other foot and Colorado was suing some other state. I do not believe, Justice O'Connor, that prejudgment interest is appropriate in this context until damages are liquidated. There was no contemplation between the states that there would even be a monetary consequence in these compacts. There might be injunctive relief. You have to think that in 1949, 
uh, the, the law was such that the common law was generally accepted to be damages only suffered prejudgment interest uh, on liquidated damages. The parties never discussed anything to do with damages in this case. The parties contemplated only that they would work together through this interstate agency, the compact administration, and would seek to ensure that depletions to usable flow didn't occur. Which, which, so when I suggested that, the government said, sounded sensible, he said, well, the, the prejudgment interest rule has always been the common law, just part of the common law, and why should we have, and you ought to just stick to that. I, I agree completely with that, and I think the cases cited by my loyal opposition are not, do not stand for the proposition. I do not believe the city of Milwaukee versus uh, uh, National Gypsum stands for the proposition that prejudgment interest is applicable in every dispute that involves some form of a contract. In fact, I believe that stands for the proposition that if you are in an admiralty circumstance and if you know or should have known that, in fact, damage had occurred, and in that case there was a Great Lakes carrier sitting at the bottom of the harbor, and the good faith was about who put it there, not the good faith that Colorado is talking about here today, which was we didn't have a clue. I don't for your think basic, One part of your basic rule is if, if the plaintiff isn't barred by latches, then the defendant shouldn't be hit with prejudgment interest. That's correct. All if right. we don't have a but, tolling... But, is that, but that can't be the whole rule. What's, what, what, what's the principle that you think we should adopt in respect to prejudgment interest in, in a, in a uh, suit between two states? In my view, until a damage, the damages are liquidated, uh, the, there should not be prejudgment interest in this case. And I think that's... Unless it's specifically words, mentioned in the compact. Unless it's described in the compact. That's correct. You say until damage is liquidated, even until there's a judgment, then. There that's would correct. be no prejudgment interest. That's I just want to get clear on, on the, the point that you and I discussed a minute ago on, on your exception to the master's finding that you should have known in 69. Which one of the four uh, Colorado exceptions raises that in, in your judgment? I, uh, three seems to be the closest to it. Well, I, You're I, number three. I, I believe that's, that's the, the closest one. That's correct. Okay. Three. Number three. We, you is, don't contest post-judgment interest. No, ma'am. You determined that very clearly in Texas versus New Mexico. Uh, but that's, and that's something that this Court determined. It didn't come from the statute that governs post-judgment interest for district courts. That's correct. So, Justice Ginsburg, we're not here to argue to you that you do not have discretion in these interstate original proceeding actions. You do. You have discretion to formulate what you believe to be as the appropriate remedy. I think you made that very clear in Texas versus New Mexico in response to the Texas claim that you were barred from awarding post-judgment interest unless there was a statute or other authority to grant it. So I, we don't dispute that, no, Your Honor. You, you want us to say that we should apply the common law rule? That's correct. Why is should that be different from what we held in the Milwaukee case for Admiralty? Well, the circumstances are very different. In the Milwaukee case, the factual circumstance is different. There was knowledge on behalf of Milwaukee. Their good faith that they didn't know something was... Well, but why but, should Admiralty, as a, as a general classification, be treated differently than the common law? Of course, the cases were always different. Well, the... Have I, variant fact. I would argue to the Court, 
Justice Kennedy, that the uh, that, that it, the situation in the Milwaukee case was a commercial transaction. In this, where whatever was occurring was understood to involve money damages. In this case, this so was you, a, you, as you read Milwaukee, if two ships collide, there's no. Well, of course, I don't. No, they, get, they didn't get, tie get, the they didn't tie the ship up right, and the argument was whether the wharfinger had failed to provide an adequate berth, or whether the owner of the ship had allowed it. Well, to but I, I, if you say that the, the facts of Milwaukee are different than this, I could, that that doesn't answer why admiralty and common law should go on two different paths. Well, they always have. Uh, admiralty has. I'm asking for, why. Um, in in this context of prejudgment interest. What is it about an admiralty case that makes prejudgment interest proper and not in a common law case? For over a sophistication of the parties or something? For over 150 years, prejudgment interest has been a part of admiralty judgments. Well, but we, now have, law, we, now, we now have Milwaukee that's, that, 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 con, that confirms that. And why should there correct. be a difference? Because the common law traditionally viewed the necessity of the defendant understanding that, in fact, an injury was occurring so that the defendant could either... I mean, common law defendants are, are, are not as smart as admiralty defendants? <laughs> well, I, I'm afraid I can't uh, fully illuminate you on the history of... Mr. Robbins, I think your point address. is that the states thought that they were incorporating common law rather than admiralty law. I, there is absolutely no way for them, yeah. Justice Scalia, to have done anything else. Thank you. Well, yeah, but I mean, when do you no, but I'm asking why there should be a difference. You're asking me a very hard philosophical question. I can only respond, Justice Kennedy, that well, we historically have a hard there philosophical a question before us in distinguishing Milwaukee. That's that's the point. I, I can I can say that I, in my judgment, the states did not contemplate that prejudgment interest was to be. Considered. In fact, they didn't even discuss damages. Well, what about the provision of the restatement, which came out, I guess, in 1932? I mean, that is supposed to be a summary of of common law, is it not? There were certainly, there have certainly been cases that have described the fact that there was no rational basis in a commercial transaction between. Uh, awarding prejudgment interest on liquidated damages but not doing so on unliquidated damages if the intention of the litigation was to restore the plaintiff fully to the position it would have been in. In this circumstance, however, that doesn't really work very well because, as was described by counsel for Kansas, the damages which Kansas seeks run to individuals, and Kansas seeks the money from the general treasury of the state of Colorado. Our view is that that, in and of itself, works a problem because, as we understand it, the Eleventh Amendment was intended to protect state treasuries from enormous damage. I don't know about the Eleventh Amendment. I mean, the, the, but the, the, my thought was, and this might be totally wrong, but it helps, that, that it isn't that they, you know, the fact that, it, that something was done in the Middle Ages is not whoever Holmes said the reason for far following it. So I'd, let's start with the restatement rule. Why shouldn't be that be the rule? I think it should be the rule in, in, in normal civil cases. In, if in, there's something different about this one, it must stem from the fact that in a very old case, what we're talking about are two groups of taxpayers, neither of whom was around at the time, shifting money between each other and stirring up a lot of trouble between their states. Is there a basis for distinction in that? And if so, what and why? 
in my view, the distinction is that uh, the, the, the agreement that was reached between the two states was one that contemplated the states would work together to ensure that additional usable flows did not — depletions to usable flow did not occur, and that there was no contemplation that there would be uh, exchanges of money between the two states as a result of the compact. There is nothing to suggest that either state contemplated or discussed the fact that there would be a monetary consequence uh, Colorado acknowledges this Court's decision in Texas versus New Mexico that damages can be, under certain circumstances, awarded in order Are you going to discuss that, the, the, uh, the proper measure of damages? In our, yeah, I would — flying I, away here, and you haven't said a word about it. What, what do you think uh, uh, the proper measure of damages should be? Thank you, Justice Scalia. I do not believe that Texas versus New Mexico addressed the standard of damages. You merely made the statement in that case, this Court that damages would be appropriate and it would be appropriate in certain circumstances in interstate litigation. Uh, the uh, proper measure of damages, in our view, are those damages which represent damages to the sovereign and quasi-sovereign damages, which would be damages to the general economy. We do not agree and, dis and, and strongly disagree that summing the individual damages — and I want to make a point here. We disagree with the United States. What the Master did was not use damages to farmers as a measure of the value of water. You will see in his report that he specifically found that he was relying upon the specific damages to those farmers. But you say the general economy. You just have all sorts of causation problems there if you try to prove damage to the general economy, don't you? The reason that Colorado engaged in the evidentiary proceeding to determine what the damages were to farmers and to the farm community was to permit the assessment of general damages. And the master made a finding about general damage to the Kansas economy, which is called secondary damages. And it was, in fact, a number was derived and is contained in his report. We do not disagree that general damages to the general economy are part of the sovereign and quasi-sovereign damages that the State of Kansas suffered. In addition, he identified and found the amount of, of lost tax revenues that the State suffered, which, would, in our view, is also an Why appropriate Why aren't the damage. farmers' losses part of the loss to the general economy? I gather what you're considering loss to the general economy is the farmers had less money and therefore didn't buy as 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 many luxury goods at the uh, at the grocery stores. I don't know why you should take into account the latter, the secondary effect of of this taking of water, the, and not take into account the former, the 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 more immediate effect the, of it. The problem that we have is this: in North Dakota versus Minnesota, you set out a fairly bright line between what a state could, in fact, recover in the way of damages and what it could not. In this case, as the record is, as the briefs make clear, if you, if you contemplate, if you calculate the specific amount of damage that each individual suffered, and if you award prejudgment interest on the rate at that, that that individual would have enjoyed or, or paid if he had had the money or obtained if he'd had the money, and you add all that up and simply say, that is the amount of money that the state of Kansas is entitled to. And then, reading Texas versus New Mexico, you say a state can decide in the public interest, which is the term used in Texas versus New Mexico, they can return that, that money to the individuals. You have simply permitted, in, in the context of trying to determine, dam to determine damages, a back door to avoid 
North Dakota versus Minnesota. But, but so, you leave one thing out in your argument, at least I think you do, and that is, uh, in this case, the, compacts, uh, the compact was entered into specifically for the purpose of protecting the individual water users as well as for protecting whatever the sovereign interest of the state as such was. So that the, the I, I think the, the reading that you're trying to give it ignores the object of the compact in, in, in frankly, in protecting the farmers. Justice Souter, I have a different take on, on Article 7A of the compact. That's, and that's what I want to And the, hear and the reason I do is this. Uh, all compacts, after your decision in Hinderleiter, and the Court's decision in Hinderleiter versus La Plata and Cherry Creek Ditch, all compacts tied the interest of the state and the interest of the water users together. There was no more an argument within this country whether or not water users could say my interest is independent of the state's interest, because that was the whole issue in the Hinderleiter case. What, ten years later, when this compact was entered into, the history was that the, that the states had been before you several times. The last time it involved water users in Kansas suing water users in Colorado, water, Colorado petitioning for this court's protection to stop the, inter, the fight between the individual ditch companies and individuals in the two states. I believe Article 7A was placed in the compact for the purpose of making certain that all of the people in the Arkansas Basin who were going to be bound by it understood on the face of the compact that they would be bound thereby. And well, for but no if, other they, if they are bound by it, I don't see why, by a parity of reasoning, their interests may not be considered uh, in valuing the, the violation. In other words, if they are bound by it, I suppose uh, either they get a benefit or the state may, may legitimately measure a benefit by reference to their interests. You want to have it one you, — you, you, you don't want to have it uh, — you want to have the, the benefit, but not the burden. We understand that we have the burden. We understand the state of Colorado understands that it has to deliver water to the state of Kansas, and it has endeavored to do so. What we do not want to do is see damages paid to the state of Kansas that represent individual damages impermissible under the 11th Amendment from being brought against the state, summed up and paid to the state of Kansas. In my view, the way in which this case has unfolded, there is a significant risk if one assumes that allowing a state to distribute any damages it receives in the public interest, that a state can simply, by clever pleading, fail to announce that it is seeking the damages of the individuals. There was not Robbins, clever I, I was thinking when you were making that argument in your brief, uh, um, what you would say the 11th Amendment means in the kind of claim, say that the Secretary of Labor would bring against a state for violation of the Fair Labor Standards Act, where that the recovery would go directly into the pocket of the affected worker. Uh, are those suits impermissible under the 11th Amendment? That is pursuant to federal statute, and that's a topic that I know this Court has had a significant amount of debate about. Well, why isn't the compact on the same level as a federal statute? Congress had to approve it. Well, it, it, it I assume it has the status of a federal it statute. It has been so described. I analogy is exact. Well, the United States can sue for damages without an 11th Amendment problem. That's correct. And I, it has been described as a federal statute. Well, of course, the United is, States can, but what you're saying here is it's not the state. You're not questioning that one state can sue another without an 11th Amendment barrier. 
But you say what makes it no good is that it's for the benefit of the farmers. So similarly, in the Fair Labor Standards Act, the United States is suing, but if you apply your reasoning, the workers are the same as the farmers. Justice Ginsburg, I am arguing North Dakota versus Minnesota to you. Which, in which case, a, a lawsuit was filed by the state of North Dakota against Minnesota. They claimed they asked for three things. They asked specifically for an injunction, which the court found was appropriate. They asked for proprietary damages or ja- damages to the state itself, which the court found was appropriate. And they asked specifically for specific damages to individual farmers who were injured by the actions of Minnesota. And the court found that was inappropriate because North Dakota was trying to stand yes, in the but in this case, there, isn't a compar- there is not a claim comparable to your third example in this that, case. That is absolutely correct, and that's why I say it becomes a matter of pleading. If you are entitled to plead generally and not speak about the farmers when you file your complaint, but simply seek their damages, and those damages are then permissible to be collected, and then you say, under Texas versus New Mexico, I can distribute them as I wish if, it's, if I determine it's in the public interest. Was there I can a com- turn around and give them back. Was there a compact in Minnesota versus North? There was not, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I thank you very thank much you, for your Thank you, Mr. Robbins. Uh, the case is submitted.